My name is Ben. I'm one of the leaders here, and more importantly, I'm one of God's kids, and really glad to be here and worshiping with you. That was a really encouraging time of worship, and uh, we get to enter into a different, a different phase of worship now as we continue in our series in Ephesians. We've been working through a series called Essentials. And uh, it's not a chapter-by-chapter chapter series in Ephesians, but kind of a flyover of the book and highlighting some of the essentials of what it looks like to be a church in Tacoma. And we've looked at two essentials so far that we're committed to being God-centered and committed to being gospel-fluent. And this morning we're going to look at a third essential, and that is we're committed to being story Formed, story formed. If you've been around Soma a while, you've heard that phrase. You know what that means. For those of you that are new and don't haven't heard that phrase before, it simply means that we believe that that God's story, His big story of redemption, is what helps us understand all the little stories. And we can't understand the Bible. We can't understand even the gospel of Jesus. We can't understand our own stories unless we see them in light of this bigger story. And to be story formed means that we don't just know the story of the Bible, but we're actually formed by it. We're actually shaped by that story. Now, to illustrate what I mean in probably a slightly hyperbolic way, I'm going to play a video clip, and some of you have seen the movie that this is from. And if you have, pretend that you haven't seen it. And if you haven't, it'll be all the, the better for you. great story? <laughs> if you've never seen the movie and I asked you, what's this story about? What would you say? I mean, is this like a weird baptism or is it torture? Is he asleep? And like, why is the water coming through the windows? We can't make sense of what this is unless we see the whole story, unless we watch the whole movie. And this is from the movie Inception, and it's about a thief with a special ability to enter people's dream states with them and steal their subconscious ideas. And to get out of the dream state, you have to have what's called a kick. And so dunking him in water, his friends are dunking him in water to, to get that kick and get him out of that dream state. Now, you can't understand that unless you watch the whole story, right? Of course, it's a Christopher Nolan film, so you can watch the whole story and still not understand it, right? <laughs> but you know, you know what I mean. And so it, in a much greater way, our lives are like that. We can't understand our stories. We can't understand the stories in the Bible unless we see them as scenes in a big story. Not as independent stories, but as scenes in a bigger story. And so this morning, I want to talk about the story of God. And I want, to, I want to give you this quote from Scottish philosopher Alistair 
McIntyre, he wrote this groundbreaking book on ethics, and in the middle of writing it, he became a Christian. And this is what he said. He said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Deprive people of stories, and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions and in their words. And what McIntyre discovered is that there's really only one fundamental story. There's only one story that shapes all the other stories, and that's the story of God. There's only one story that makes sense of the world. And more importantly, it's the only story that God's given us in the Bible. And we need to remember this is a story. This isn't just a collection of writings written by human beings. It's men and women inspired by God writing down his story. And it's a single coherent narrative with a villain, a hero, and a certain future. And as we understand God's word, as we understand his story, it shapes us. And so I just want to look at two questions today. What's the story? What is the story that we're talking about? And we're going to take a little extra time. We haven't done this in a, in a while at Soma, so we're going to take a little extra time and, and answer the question, what is this story that we're talking about? What's this big story? And then two, how does it shape or form us? So number one, what is the story? What is the story? Ephesians 1.1 says that, that God predestined according to the plan, predestined us to believe, predestined us to be God's kids according to the plan, the story of him who works out everything according to his will. And so we're going to do a little, this kind of a little combo deal today, a little training, more training and preaching all at the same time, okay? And we're going to use a tool that a lot of our other SOMA churches use. I've tweaked it a little bit for us today to walk through the six major plots or plot points in God's drama story of redemption. And the first is creation. Use a down arrow as the symbol. And we're using these six symbols, you'll see, because it's an easy way to remember the story. That's the goal as we walk out of here. You can memorize these symbols in five minutes. And, and if you have those symbols in your mind, they can be hooks, helpful hooks, to remember the story of God. But in Ephesians, we, we are called back to the story of creation. And in 3.9, it says God created all things. In 3.14, before this prayer of Paul's, he says that the Father is the one who gives every family its name. In other words, the Father gives every person their identity. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, it says we have one God and Father of all who is over all, over all, and through all, and in all. And so when you go back to, to the beginning of the story, God created everything and it was beautiful. It was heaven on earth. He created a beautiful place, and the apex of his creation was Adam and Eve, who he put in that beautiful place, that garden, to be with him and to love him and to serve him. And so I found it helpful to kind of combine this tool with three other 
identities, with the three identities that we use very frequently here, family, servant, and missionary. And there's more than those three identities in the Bible. There's many, many, many. But those three identities run throughout the whole story. They're, they're a stream that goes throughout the whole story of the Bible. And so I, I'm going to need your help. Help me out here. When you think back to creation and Adam and Eve, what did family look like? They're the first family, Adam and Eve. What did the relationship with God and each other look like? Give me some words to describe what it looked like. Naked and unashamed. Good. Accessible to, to God, right? And to each other. They walked with God. So, yeah, fellowship with God and each other. What else? Harmony. Intimacy. Good. They were not dysfunctional. <laughs> Full access to God in harmony with each other. Okay, how about, how about the identity of, of servant? What did that look like for Adam and Eve? How were they in perfect relationship to their king? What did that look like? God is king. Yeah, walking with him in the cool of the day. They, they looked at their king as good. And they looked at his rules initially as good rules. Right? He was a good king. How else do we see them functioning as servants? Say again. Yeah, taking care of creation. First environmentalist, good. They, they, they repped the king, okay? <laughs> they represented the, the king and served under his, his word and his rule with joy. They didn't look at God's rules as bad. What was their mission? Make babies, right? Multiply. And what was the goal of the multiplication? Yeah, fill the earth with these kind of people. To fill the earth with worshipers. That was their mission. Go multiply and fill the earth with people who are in relationship with me and who serve me gladly as king. And so it's this part of the story that we get our identity from. Want to know who we are? Go back to the one who made us. Want to know what our purpose is? Go back to the one who made us. Go back to creation. And this part of the story is what shows us who we are. It was heaven on earth. But we know the story didn't stay there, right? Enter the villain of the story. Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he tempts them and says, don't believe that God's good, that he's a good king. Don't believe that he's a good father. Instead, you'd be so much better off if you lived independently with, from God. 
And they believe that lie that they could become their own gods and dismiss God, and the results were catastrophic. And so we'd call this part of the story the fall. And we use an X to symbolize it because this is where the villain tries to derail the story of God, where Adam and Eve, they were the first cancel culture. (laughs) They tried to cancel God. We don't need him. We can live without him. We can live independently. And then in Ephesians, we see see the consequences of the fall. Look at some of the phrases that Paul uses in Ephesians. 2 verse 1, we're dead in our sins, following the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's Satan. We gratify the cravings of our flesh and deserve God's wrath. Verse 13 of chapter 2, we are far away from God. So again, it's helpful to think, what what happened to these identities? The fall flipped them upside down. The fall separated heaven from earth. And so these are all flipped upside down. What what happened to our identity as family? What what are we in the fall in terms of our relationship to God? What are some of the words you use to describe it? Shame, yep. Broken. We're orphans, willingly orphans, far from God. How else would you describe our relationship to God and each other? Distant and dead. Yeah. How about, how about our relationship to God as servants? What, how do we start looking at, after the fall, how do we start looking at God's rules and God as king? Yeah, questioning, right? Good. What else? Say again. Optional, yeah. Yes. Difficult. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're oppressive. And, and because of our sin, every time we attempt to obey God, we, we feel condemnation. And we don't look at God's rules as good and right anymore in our sin, but as oppressive. What happens to the mission in the fall? Yeah. Yep. Fill the earth with death. That we, we become our own senders, right? We, we pursue our own mission. In, instead of looking at God's mission and seeing what, what's his purpose in the earth, we become our own self-appointed missionary. What, what's our mission? Yes, yeah. Right. Yeah. 
That's it. No longer is it about making God famous, because that's what the mission ultimately is, right? It's, it's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping God. It becomes about our name being famous. So the fall tells us what our primary problem is, and we have been learning to nuance this a little. Instead of saying just our problem is rebellion, it's Satan and sin and trauma and trouble. Because there's brokenness, there's sin that we commit as rebels, but there's also sin committed against us that causes us trauma and wounds that is real as part of the fall. And we also live in a world full of trouble and brokenness. And they're all part of the fall. And if we really grasp how bad it is, then we know that the only one who can rescue us is God. And usually the next part of the story, when we work through this, we we call redemption. But there's 4,000 years of history, as, as you mentioned, brother, between the fall and Jesus. And so I think it's helpful to talk about another part of the story that we'll just call Israel. And I'll fill this one out. Because the moment, the moment man sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, God started making promises. He started making promises. We call those covenants. He said, I'm going to send a hero who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And God makes covenant after covenant after covenant. And those covenants are all designed to make a family and a kingdom that are on his mission. That's what those covenants are for in the Old Testament. And so God makes a covenant with Israel and says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And he institutes sacrifices and in the place of the temple is where heaven and earth meets. And so there there is, even in the Old Testament, this slow but incomplete opportunity for heaven and earth to meet again like it was in the garden. And so God makes covenants with Israel, says, you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God, but that family is highly dysfunctional. When we read the Old Testament, we see that, right? Because the people included in that covenant are people that are born into it. And so there are people in that covenant that are not believers. They don't believe in, in Yahweh. They don't follow him. And they're all together in this one big dysfunctional family. And then we see in the kings of the Old Testament... This, this attempt to have a kingdom where God's people serve God and are under his rule. But you look at the history of the kings, it is one roller coaster ride of good and evil, right? Where the, the kings of Israel were meant to represent God's kingdom and help God's people live as servants under God's rule. And over and over and over again they fail. And over and over and over again God's people hope that the next king will be the king that brings heaven back to earth. The next king will be the king that helps us serve under God's good rule. And constantly they're disappointed and yet renewed in their hope because God gives them promises. And then the mission of God in the Old Testament was come and see. Come and see this family, this kingdom in the nation of Israel. See what it's like. And that was largely disastrous because whenever people came and saw, they saw idolatry just like the rest of the world. Few bright spots in history, but largely disastrous. 
And so this moment in time pointed us forward to a hero who would come. And so we, we call this section promise as a reminder that often God's story takes a lot of time to develop. And God, as God's people, we live by faith, not by sight. And we're resting in God's promises. And all of these promises that God made that, I knew, that a hero would come who would create a new family, who would bring heaven to earth and rule as king, and the mission would no longer be come and see, but go, show, and tell. That king, that, king, that hero, was Jesus. And after thousands of years of history, God kept his promise, and he sent his son, and the verses in Ephesians are up there for, for Israel. I forgot to read those, but Paul even hearkens back, goes back, to the history of Israel and says, remember that the covenants of promise, you're now a part of them in Jesus. And he's talking about this whole period of history that develops. And so God, God sends a hero, and the hero is Jesus. We call this part of the story redemption. And Ephesians 1.4 says, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. In chapter 2 and verse 18, it says, Through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And then you keep reading in Ephesians. We go to the next slide, Andre. It says, Now you are light in the Lord. That's the word for king. Live as children of light. You're in a new kingdom of light. Live like you're servants of the kingdom. And then in chapter 3, verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. That's the mission of, of the church. So Jesus, by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he brings redemption. He, he starts to bring heaven back to earth. And we use the symbol of the cross to remember all those events. It's not just the cross. That's significant. But it's Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And by Jesus' work on the cross... He starts to restore these identities. He starts to give us a new identity. And so he creates a new family. What, what's that new family like? How's it described? We, we read a little bit of it. You guys know some of the terms. How is this new family described in, in the gospel, in redemption? Alive. One body. Brought near. Yes. Love. Oh, grafted it. Yeah, love for one another. Good. Adopted. Yeah, adopted. It's a whole lot more amazing than this story of this family in the Old Testament, right? It, it has a totally new look because everyone in God's family is given a new heart and a new desire 
to love each other and access to the Father. We all have access to the Father. We don't have to go to a temple anymore. We all have access to the Father. So this is a new family that God has created. How how about as servants? What changes in our relationship to God as king? Say again. Sonship. Sonship. Yeah, okay. Good. What else? A new heart. Yeah, good. Yeah, First John, I think it is, his, his commandments are joyous, not grievous. The only way we can say that is when we know that we're not condemned, when we fail to keep the law because Jesus kept it for us, and when our hearts are restored to believe once again that God's law and rule is good. It's good. And we get to, we get to rep the king again, right in the earth. And to serve one another. Good. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's good. So we're serving in light of this whole thing and serving God's people. Proclaim. Proclaim, proclaiming his reign, right? And of course, the mission of God that we're called on, because the Spirit of God works in our heart, he restores the, the desire and the impulse to see God's name famous in all the earth, to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation experience redemption through, and this is the part of the story that tells us who our hero really is, through the hero Jesus. As we were reminded a couple weeks ago, we talked about God-centeredness. The, the story of redemption is about Jesus. It's about God himself. It's about seeing people come back to the hero of the story. Now there's another plot line in the story that we talk about that I think is really important because just like in the Old Testament, the church is in a period of looking forward. And, and we're in what, what we call this already not yet period of history. Augustine says we have the option of not being dysfunctional, but we are not there yet. So God's kingdom has come to earth but his kingdom has not fully merged back together. There's not a new heaven and a new earth yet. And so we we read about this in Ephesians. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus. And then he says in Ephesians 1.14 that we are sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. So which is it? Are we redeemed or will we be redeemed? And the answer is yes, right? We like to say around here that in Jesus... We have been saved from the penalty of sin, and we are being saved from the power of sin, and someday we will be saved from the presence of sin. And so we are in this already not yet moment where all of these realities of this this kingdom, all these realities of being God's family are starting to be accomplished, but we are longing for them to be fully accomplished. 
And so again, we're in this phase where we are trusting in the promises of God. That he will finish what he started. And that's the last part of the story. New creation. And we use the down arrow again because God is going to bring heaven to earth. The gospel is not about us just going to heaven. It's about Jesus bringing heaven to earth. And there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And in that reality of the new heaven and new earth, we will be perfect family. We won't be dysfunctional anymore. We won't hurt each other anymore. We won't sin against each other anymore. Our, our, villain, our villains, sin and Satan and trauma and trouble, they're all going to be gone. And we will serve. You look in Revelation, we're actually going to be serving for all eternity. Did you know that? But we're just going to be really happy about it. Jesus is going to be our king. And we're going to be glad to do everything he, that he bids us to do. We're going to find our joy and fulfillment in serving him forever. And the mission of God is going to be finished. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be together and worshiping God. And this is our ultimate hope. Yeah. Can we just... This is one reason I hate whiteboards. They're great. But can we just step back a minute and remember, this is not just a whiteboard. They're not just symbols and a, a great tool. Like, this is our story. This is our story. And it's a really good story. There are parts of the story that are really hard. But it's a really good story that God is writing. It's a really good story. So here's the story. And there's a dozen ways to do this, but here's one way. And, and family, you can do this. Like, you can memorize those six symbols. And, and you already know this language, family, servant, missionary. And you can tell this story. You don't have to do it this way. You don't have to remember all the things that we talked about. But you can sit down with those six symbols and a napkin, and you can walk through the story of God. You can do it in your MC, your DNA group. You can do it with someone who doesn't know Jesus and who says, hey, what's the Bible all about? Well, let me tell you. This is a tool that we can, we can use. But more importantly than just, just knowing the story, is asking the question, how does the story shape us? How does the story shape us? And let me give you three things. Number one, it is a compelling invitation to let God write our stories. At the most basic level, this story is an invitation to let go of the story that we write for our lives and to let God write it. And I know that's a really un-American thing to say, right? I mean, in America, it is all about my story. It's my life. It's my relationships. It's my job. It's my career. It's my house. It's my fill-in-the-blank. The idea of letting someone else write our story is very un-American. And even the Christianized version of the American dream is... We're okay if God writes the introduction to our story and has a couple of chapters or at least a couple of footnotes, and we definitely want him to write the end of the story, but we want to write the rest of it. And, and we have a hard time letting the pen go. I lived for so long learning this story, believing that it's true, but just tenaciously holding to the pen and wanting to write my own story. 
and God has to keep prying my fingers off the pen. And, and when I say, God, okay, it's your story, I'll submit to it, that's, that's one thing. But when I can say, God, I, I actually love your story, it's actually better, and the story you're writing for my life is actually better than the one I would write, that, that's when you start to have joy. That's when you start to feel real purpose, when it's not this just resignation, okay, God, you're going to write it however you want, go ahead. But when it's this, this actual, okay, Lord, you, you are actually better at this. Like, your big story is better than the story I could write for my life. And, and that doesn't change the fact that we lament this. That we lament the brokenness and the sin and the trauma. That is part of living in God's story. If we can't lament that, we're actually not living in God's story. But it means we let the hero rescue us the way he wants to rescue us. It means we don't write our own rescue plan and simply call in Jesus as a sidekick when we can't handle it. It means we say, Jesus, this is my story. You rescue me. Make it your story. You rescue me the way you want to rescue me. And, and that's where we have to start with a story. And I have to wake up every day and all over again and say, Lord, what's your story and how can I be a part of it today? Not what's my story and how can you be a part of it? Like we, we just want God to autograph the front of our stories, right? God's like, no, I'm not going to do that. My story's better. And so I just want to invite you, family, to, to, to be able to say that again, all over again. To wake up tomorrow and say, God, what is the story you're writing? And maybe some of you are here today and, and you don't really like your story. Like, you're, you don't like the way God's writing it. And you really want to keep grabbing the pen and say, no, God, this way. No, God, this way. And we need to ask the Spirit to help us let go of the pen. Help us let God write our stories. And if you're here today and you, this isn't your story, it's never been your story, you're, you're not part of this, you, you don't feel invited into the story, Jesus is not your hero, then, then maybe today is the day God wants you to respond to his invitation to be part of his bigger story of redemption. So it's an invitation into a bigger story, but secondly, it reshapes everyday moments of life. You see, we're all wired for story. All of us carry a version of this story around in our hearts and minds, whether we're conscious of it or not. Like God has wired every one of us. That's part of being made in the image of God. We're wired to live according to a story. And if you listen closely enough to your own heart, you can hear where this story is operating or not operating well in your life. And this, this tool can be really helpful in everyday moments of life. And I'm going to give you a couple examples. They're from my life because I want you to know this isn't some abstract tool, but something that God has helped me use over time. And it can really be helpful in real life. In, um, Amanda couldn't be here today. She's with a, at a birthday party with Emma. And so we've done this together before. But in the early days of our marriage, we had this ongoing debate of whether we should buy or rent a house. And Amanda was like, you always buy a house. Not just for financial reasons, but because it creates security. She's like, I want something I can call my own. Like, I want to be able to decorate and do whatever I want, and it's my own house. And I'm like, yeah, but what about the repairs? <laughs> like, I'd rather rent like, I'd rather rent a house so I don't have to worry about when the roof falls apart or when the sink is leaking 
And, you know, I, if it's a computer, I can fix it. If it's not, forget it, right? And so I'm like, I, I think we should rent. And so we had this debate, and we, all, we both went to our corners of why renting's better, why buying's rent better. And God actually helped us work through this with this story and to figure out, like, what is going on in our hearts here? What's happening? So we just kind of walk you through it, and, and maybe it'll be helpful. We, we looked at, like, what, what's our identity in this moment? What are we saying about who we think we're meant to be? And what I was saying is I, I'm meant to rest. Like, God created me to rest and not be stressed. Partially true, right? True. And man is like, God created me to be secure. Now, there's truth in both of those statements, right? But my problem is buying a house, right? That's my problem. Because that will definitely not produce rest. And Amanda's problem is renting a house, because if we rent a house, we're not going to feel secure. And so we'll get back to the promise thing in a minute. So who, our, our hero in the story, we started thinking about, well, who's our hero in the story? Well, my hero is, is Amanda, right? Because I want her to say, of course, honey, let's rent a house. Like if she would just say that, I'd be good. And Amanda wanted me to say, of course, buying's the best thing. Like, let's buy a house. It's more secure. And, and let me just say this. Whenever, if you ever get to this part in the story and there's something or someone other than Jesus here, <laughs> you know you're in trouble, right? And so what was our ultimate hope? My ultimate hope was if we just rent houses, I won't be stressed and I'll have more time and rest. Her ultimate hope was if, she, if we buy a house, we'll feel secure. So then we went back through and said, okay, that, that's not God's story. Parts of it, maybe. But what's God's real story in this? And so the identity piece, there's some truth to that, right? We are created for rest. We are created for security. But we're also family, servants, missionaries. And what would it look like to look at this question as a missionary? To look at this question as God's servants? And, and then you get to the fall part my real problem was I needed to find my rest in God. I needed to believe that God would give me the wisdom and help me find the right YouTube videos to fix stuff in the house if it happened, right? And to, to rest in him or find the right community of people, the right missional community that I could say, come over and help. I needed to trust the Lord with that. And Amanda realized that her, her problem is she needed to trust the Lord for her security, that her security wasn't in owning a home, but in God himself. And so then when you get to the hero of the story, it's Jesus. Now you know you're on the right track, right? I needed Jesus to help me do something that I was not inclined to do, to believe that God would give me the wisdom and the grace to, to fix stuff as it came up and to, to be full of rest despite it. And Amanda needed the grace that if we rented a house or lived in a tent whatever, that she would find her rest and refuge in God. And so then our ultimate hope was, if Jesus the hero will come through and help us believe that we are secure and that we have rest in him, then that's our happily ever after. Now what that did is it helped us approach the problem in a different way. Instead of going into our corners, we said, well, if we're missionaries and if we're finding our rest and our security in God, then we ask the question, what, what's the best thing for the mission of God in this moment? And that means sometimes you rent a house because you need flexibility and time. And it means sometimes you buy a house like we did in Tacoma because we're here to put down roots to stay and to love this city. And buying a house communicates that. And so we looked at it in a different way. And the story of God helped us do that.
Let me give you another one, and this one's fresh out of the oven. <laughs> Something God is working in my own heart, and I uh, hope God will use it in you. Um, one of the conflicts that I bring to my marriage is I have a longing to be understood. And when I feel understood, I feel known. And when I feel known, I feel loved. And so if Amanda doesn't understand me, and it's not for lack of trying on her part, she wants to and longs to understand me well. But if I feel misunderstood, I feel unknown and unloved. And oftentimes the unhealthy, sinful response to that is anger and condescension and pride and all kinds of things. And while I repent regularly when that happens, I've been asking God, show me what's going on here. Like, what is at the heart of this? And and I sat down in prayer, and I didn't walk through this mechanically. If you do this enough, it just starts to become automatic. And what I realized, and what God started showing me, is the false story that I was believing. That is, my my identity is to be known and understood and loved. And that's actually true right? That's actually part of God's story. But my problem is my wife doesn't understand me. And so who's the hero of the story? Amanda, right? I I know I'm off base, right? If Amanda would just understand me, I would be okay. Now I can cloak it in self-righteousness and say, if Jesus is my hero, if she would, if he would just change Amanda, (laughs) but that doesn't work, right? That doesn't work. Still the same thing. So, so that's a ton of pressure. Let, let me just tell you, you can run any marriage through this filter, any problem. And if you land here with your spouse as the hero, you're creating a toxic environment in your marriage. No spouse can be your hero. It's impossible. No one can bear that weight. So, so my ultimate hope was if Amanda would understand me, I'd feel known and loved. And so God started to show me. And, and I knew this. But I didn't know it. I didn't absorb it. Th- that it's true I was created to be known and loved and understood, but my real problem was I wasn't believing. I'm not believing that God understands me and knows me and deeply loves me. Like he knows me in and out. He understands me. And so my hero is not my wife, My hope is not that she'll understand me well. It's that I believe that God knows me and understands me and loves me deeply. And my ultimate hope is I'm going to be okay if I believe that. I'm going to be okay if I walk in that. If I live in the reality that God loves me, understands me, and knows me, I'm going to be okay. And out of that, then we can talk about what, what does it look like in marriage to understand each other better. Now you can go into it with freedom and not this angst. If you, if you don't understand me, we're in trouble. This pressure, but this, this release to say, my hope, my joy comes from being understood and loved by God. Now this is why these two things, promise, promise, are so important. Because I might realize this about my own heart, but it's not fixed. Like there's a long way to go. I mean, just yesterday it came up. That's why I changed the illustration. Okay, I had something completely different. And then 
We had another incident where I felt the same thing. I'm like, this is it. This is what I need to talk about. But I'm not there yet. But I, I've changed the way I repent. Instead of repenting of anger, I'm repenting of not believing that God knows me and cares for me deeply. And the promises that I'm clinging to are promises of God knowing and loving and understanding me. But i got a long way to go to see this work out in everyday life. Like i got to keep believing those things and keep clinging to those promises. So, so ask me in a couple months, how's it going? How's it going? But it changes the way we look at it, changes the way we do our life. And so I just encourage you, do, do this in your, in your DNA groups. Do this in your marriages. Do this in your missional communities. And, and let me just remind you that when you get to this part here, the problem, it's not always just sin. It's not always just rebellion. That's, that, that's a piece of it for sure. But don't forget that our, and there's even generational wounds that contribute to the thing I just talked about with no, being known and understood in my own life. But there's trauma. There's sin against us. There's trouble. Sometimes there's, there's attack of Satan involved. And so let's not oversimplify when we get to the fall especially that it's just sin you need to repent of. Well, maybe it's wounds that Jesus needs to heal you. The reality is, though, Jesus is always the hero. He can use counseling. He can use therapy. He can use all of those things. But Jesus is the one that has to heal your wounds and help you repent and rescue you. So God's story, it's an invitation to let God write our stories. It reshapes everyday moments of life, and it makes us better listeners of other stories. And I put this one last because it's really important you do this with your own heart first. It's really important that you, you become fluent, like we talked about last week, with what does it look like to live in this story and apply this to my own heart before you start analyzing other people's lives. But as you do this in your own heart, it's going to make you a better listener for both believers and not yet believers. Because every not yet believer has a story that they're operating out of. Every person has this identity. They want acceptance. They want respect. They want approval. They want what, fill in the blank. And every person has an idea of what the problem is. Like, what are the obstacles in this world? And, and every person has a hero something or someone that they think will rescue them or bring them back to their purpose. And everyone has some kind of ultimate hope. And as you listen to people's stories, listen for, for where those realities in their story intersect with God's story. And the first thing to do is to pray. <laughs> like as you're listening to someone's story and say, man, they really long for respect and approval. And Jesus is the only one that can give them that through the Father. Lord, will you please show them they cannot get that any other place? And then you have these open doors to speak the gospel, not in this scripted plan of salvation way, but in a way that connects with people's stories. Because usually it's the fall and the, the hero, the redemption part, where people's stories deviate from God's story. A lot of times, the, the things that people are longing for are what they were made for. But the, the, the problem, the obstacles to get to those things are completely different. And especially the hero. What's going to bring him there? So you listen for who or what their hero is, and you have a, an open door to say, Jesus is actually better. Jesus can give you what your heart is longing for. 
And that gives you a winsome way to intersect their story with God's story. Instead of a, hey, what's going to happen when you die? <laughs> or where are you going to spend eternity? I used to go door to door as a kid and knock on the door. And that was the opening line. Hey, do you know what's going to happen when you die? <laughs> not, not a winsome way, right, to share the gospel. God can use that. So don't get me wrong. God can use that. He uses all of our weaknesses and brokenness to accomplish his, his plan and purpose. But this is a more winsome way to, to intersect Jesus with people's stories, just to listen well, see where it intersects with God's story, and then point them to Jesus as their hero.